Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. The animal that we're going to be talking about today is a large amphibian found in fresh water. They have some pretty cool adaptations that help them survive in the wild, and I can't wait for you to hear about them. But they're also in need of our help because their populations are declining. Luckily, our guest, Nick Bergmeier, the Extension Wildlife Specialist at Purdue University, knows all about them and how we can help. So get ready to hop into some rivers and streams, because we're talking about hellbenders. are a species of salamander that live in the rivers and streams of North America. And these aren't your average small salamanders that you'd find hiding under a rock on land. They're fully aquatic, so they don't need to leave the water. This is abnormal because salamanders are amphibians, which usually means they spend part of their lives in the water and part of their lives out of the water. They're also the largest salamander in North America. They can grow to be over two feet long and weigh around five pounds. And people don't just call them hellbenders. They're also called all kinds of different names, like snot otters and old lasagna sides. We'll talk about why they're called that later on in the episode. But first, let me introduce our guest, Nick Bergmeier, who studies hellbenders at Purdue University. Let's hear about why he decided to start studying these amazing creatures. I've been interested in, in herps and animals in general from a, pretty much most of my life. Uh, you know, when I was a, a small child, I was out running around, chasing around bugs and snakes and scaring my parents. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't grow up in an area with hellbenders. So hellbenders specifically, I had the opportunity during a summer job when I was in college to go out with the state herpetologist in Indiana and do some hellbender surveys. And I mean, it was just a couple of days, but that was really fun. Enjoyed it. And then the following summer, I ended up working for the state herpetologist. And so I got to do many more hellbender surveys. And that really got my interest up. And then right at the end of that job, a a grad school uh, position came open working with hellbenders in Indiana. So I applied and I ended up getting that. And it's just kind of gone from there. Hellbenders are so interesting. No wonder Nick enjoys working with them. For instance, they have an extremely unique anatomy that helps them survive in their environment. So hellbenders, I mean, they, they are a fully aquatic species. So most of, their, most of their adaptations are for a life in the water. Um, I mean, one of the main things you might notice on hellbenders is, is that even though they live underwater, they don't have, they don't have gills, at least the hellbenders that most people see. So they are... They hatch when they hatch, they do have gills, but they lose those after about a year and a half to two years. 
And then at that point, it just it just looks like a little mini hellbender, a little mini adult hellbender. And they actually breathe uh, through their skin. So they have very highly permeable, very vascular skin. And so they just absorb the oxygen into their body and into their bloodstream. And one of the sort of defining features of hellbenders, they have these big folds of skin along the sides of their body. And that's really just extra skin to increase the surface area to, to help them absorb more oxygen. And that's also how they get one of their other names, the old lasagna sides, which is, is kind of a fun name that, that they, <laughs> they're called in some places. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that uh, one of the reasons hellbenders are typically associated with sort of high water quality areas is because they do, since they don't have gills, they do have to absorb that oxygen through their skin. They, uh, they really need those high water quality areas. That's generally where high oxygen levels are. Usually poor water quality is associated with, with low oxygen levels and hellbenders just can't handle that. They, they don't have a really an alternate way to, to absorb oxygen. Like uh, mud puppies, for example, have gills. They can live in sort of lower, lower quality areas, you know, ponds and lakes and ditches, but the hellbenders can't do that. They need that high water quality. And this is something that we're going to talk more about later on in the episode because the quality of fresh water is going down due to a bunch of different factors caused by humans. And the permeability of their skin makes them extremely vulnerable to that. This goes for most amphibians, especially uh, aquatic amphibians. Basically anything that gets in the water, you know, whether it's high oxygen content or pollutants, you know, uh, pesticides or salt, anything like that that gets in the water, motor oil, that stuff can just be absorbed right into their skin. So, so they, they really have a hard time. That's, that's one of the reasons why we generally consider them the sort of canary in the coal mine, because they are one of the species that disappears first uh, in, the, in the aquatic ecosystem. As Nick mentioned, these are completely aquatic animals. This makes their methods of navigating through the environment a little different than those of us that live on land. So if you see a hellblender, I mean, you might notice like these things have tiny little eyes. So, so that they can see, but they don't see very well. So most of their, most of their navigation, most of their ability to find prey is, is based on sense and, and touch. And also they have a lateral line system that's sort of similar to some fish. And that allows them to, they can sense movement in the water. They can sense vibrations and pressure changes. So if something moves nearby, even if it can't see it or even necessarily smell it, it might feel it move and it could it can go over that direction or away if it happens to be a predator. It's really amazing that they're able to sense changes in water pressure. I was also interested to know if hellbenders are social animals. Hellbenders in the wild are not very social animals. We don't, we don't usually find them together outside of the breeding season. Uh, they, they are usually pretty territorial, especially during the breeding season. Males will defend potential nest rocks. Uh, even females will fight with each other. But during the breeding season, we do, they, they will come together, I mean, obviously to breed. And, and sometimes you see these big congregations, which usually amounts to a male under a rock. And then there'll be multiple, up, sometimes multiple females going to the rock and, and maybe even like a sneaker male trying to get in there and, and, and uh, fertilize some eggs. But we do, we do, I mean, they are territorial. We see hellbenders with big bite marks on them. You know, they occasionally rip off each other's limbs. Uh, they can get pretty, they can get pretty uh, rough out there. 
There haven't been a lot of studies on specific hellbender social interactions. I know there was one tried to look at uh, in captivity that tried to look at some courtship behavior, and, and they did seem to do some some males and females did some circling behavior, which is common in other salamanders, and and some tail swishing, but it wasn't real definitive on whether or not it was it was it ever led to anything or if it was just some minor interaction. Uh, in captivity, it is a little different. Uh, we we rear juvenile hellbenders uh, at Purdue and in some of the zoos. And for whatever reason, those things congregate. Even if they have options, uh, multiple shelter options, you will tend to find them congregated in one or two. Uh, and we don't really know why, because they don't do that. Once we release them into the wild, they don't do that. We rarely find them together in the wild. But in captivity, they seem to pick a pick a shelter and then they all go to that one. But even then, uh, once they do start to get a little older, they do fight a little bit, and we we do get some juveniles that have injuries, and and that's, some actually will occasionally fight each other's feet off again in captivity. And oftentimes, you can see an animal's behavior change when it's in captivity compared to when it's in the wild. I would imagine it's hard to observe these animals in the wild because they live in rivers and streams, and they're also mainly nocturnal. So they're they're just a hard species to to get a lot of behavioral stuff, and and they spend they spend so much of their time under rocks that you just can't see much. I mean, they they don't come out from under their rock very much, so they're tough to work with. Now let's go back to talking about some issues that they're facing right after the break. The science word that I want to tell you about today is avoviviparous. If an animal is avoviviparous, that means that they store fertilized eggs in their body and don't lay them. The babies hatch while still in the female's body, and then they're released once they hatch. Some species of snakes and sharks are avoviviparous. Okay, we're back. So what's hurting hellbenders? Well, so big picture, you know, climate change is, is likely to be a significant issue with hellbenders. It's a little hard to predict exactly how it's going to affect them, but, you know, warming temperatures, we expect, you know, warming, warming water temperatures, which would end would subsequently lead to a decrease in dissolved oxygen in the water uh, and also changes in the surrounding landscape. So, you know, we're not sure. Exactly, but I, I do suspect, uh, especially some of the the populations that are already sort of hanging on or that are in areas that are a little warmer already, uh, those those populations might end up blinking out. Uh, I guess on a more local or regional scale, uh, the major issue is sort of just general forest loss. Uh, you know, once you cut down all the trees, and they we have seen this in, in a few studies that they do tend to be highly correlated with with forest cover in the landscape. And once you lose that forest cover, uh, combined with a lot of agricultural runoff or urban runoff, especially in the Midwest, uh, we suspect that's led to the decline throughout much of their range. I feel like not many people think about how deforestation affects aquatic animals. We tend to think about how it impacts animals that live in trees, but it can be a huge problem for freshwater ecosystems as well. 
And hellbenders are important for a healthy ecosystem too. So one of the unfortunate things about hellbenders is that people didn't really study them a lot before they declined. They, there were a few people that would go out and do a mess with them, but for the most part, they didn't get much attention until they had already mostly disappeared or at least heavily declined in a lot of areas. We generally think of hellbenders as being one of the top predators in whatever stream they're in. Uh, certainly some of the smaller streams, but even in some of the bigger streams, they, they are likely one of the top predators. Uh, they're, they're primarily crayfish, so they, they're kind of a crayfish specialist. They'll eat other things too, but they some studies have shown 80 plus percent of their diet is crayfish. So we, we always kind of, we hypothesize that they probably do have some, uh, some effect on regulating crayfish populations. But again, nobody paid attention to that until after they had declined. But, you know, that's kind of a weird thing to talk to the general public about. Like, oh, well, hellbenders might regulate crayfish populations. Uh, they do, the, the importance of crayfish is, is they tend to be voracious eaters of everything they can fit in their mouths. And, and the idea is that if, you know, the hellbenders disappear, the crayfish populations shoot up. And they eat all the all the little macro invertebrates that are on the bottom of the stream that the fish eat that everything else eats that it, it could throw those lower trophic levels uh, out of whack. But that's just sort of the hypothesis because nobody's ever had the opportunity to say uh, to see a, a pre slash post decline stream. It's unfortunate that we didn't get a chance to study them until after they started to decline. But it's thought that if they disappear, it could have some negative implications on the food web. For for something that's maybe slightly more, uh, maybe the general population, the general public might might see as more of a benefit. As we talked a little bit about earlier, they are that sort of canary in the coal mine, and most people do, or at least people that live near rivers uh, or like to drink water, they they do prefer clean water and. And you do know that when your hellbenders start disappearing, that that lets you know that something is wrong with your system. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is, but it, it could be that you know there's chemicals in the water, or or it, it's just a general decrease in water quality. So for that reason, we would call hellbenders an indicator species. Luckily, Purdue is working on helping hellbenders right now. And. The mid 2000s, Indiana Department of Natural Resources approached Purdue to look at our remaining hellbender populations in Indiana, and and we knew when they approached us that there was pretty much just one stream left in Indiana that still had hellbenders. Uh, they used to be in most of the streams in uh, the central slash eastern. Let's see. Let's let me let me think how to word this. Hellbenders used in Indiana. Hellbenders used to be found. And most of the Ohio River tributaries from about Crawford County, which is the, the south central part of the state, all the way east up towards the border of Ohio. So they're in most of those streams. But but by the mid 2000s, they're pretty much just in one river, the Blue River uh, in southern Indiana. And so the, the DNR asked us, you know, hey, can you can you try to figure out what's wrong with these things? Essentially, how many we have left? So we did a lot of population surveys. We looked at their genetics. We looked at uh, various health indicators, uh, like uh, sperm quality, and we looked at their blood to see if they have any diseases. And basically, everything came back great. They're fine. They don't have any problems individually. And the habitat quality was good there. The habitat was there. So in Indiana, we kind of think that 
whatever happened happened in the past and it's since improved but hellbenders got to a point where they just couldn't recover so that sort of led into the next phase of our our work which was figuring out you know what do we need to do to bring these back uh, we did some we did some modeling to see you know how many hellbenders we would have to put back and and how they would how well they would need to survive and at that point in about 2017 was our first release of hellbenders so since 2017 we've been actively releasing juvenile hellbenders back into the blue river at at a handful of of pre-selected sites and i should mention that the hellbenders we release come from at the original couple of batches came from eggs we collected in the blue river but it's very hard to find eggs in indiana so we've We've since been going to Ohio and Kentucky to collect eggs from a couple of streams they have that still have good populations. And, and we rear those in captivity for about uh, three and a half to four and a half years. And then we release those back in the wild. That's really great. And getting eggs from different populations can help to increase genetic diversity. You know, one of the things we looked at, we looked at the genetics of our population and and we didn't see any signs of inbreeding. but those animals are so old and it takes them so long to mature, we might not see signs of inbreeding until farther down the road. So bringing in these this stock from outside of Indiana could definitely help increase genetic diversity. And we also were able, we, we actually did genetics throughout the range of hellbenders to see which populations were suitable. And Ohio and, and Kentucky, those were suitable matches for our population. But unfortunately, the places that would be the best to get uh, other hellbenders from, which would be in the Appalachian Mountains, because they still have great some some of those places still have great hellbender populations. Those were not very good matches. They they seem to be genetically distinct from from the Ohio River hellbenders, and and so we we couldn't get those. But Kentucky and Ohio still have some good stuff, so we get we get our eggs from them. But Purdue isn't the only institution working to help hellbenders. So in Indiana. You know, we have we have what we call the Indiana Hellbender Partnership. And I love, you know, we talk a lot about Purdue and the DNR, but we have multiple zoos. We have Fort Wayne Children's Zoo and Indianapolis Zoo, Mesker Park Zoo. They they help rear our hellbenders in captivity. Uh, Columbian Park Zoo, which is a little zoo up near Purdue, they do a lot of outreach and education. But it's not just zoos, even. We also work with, with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. We work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We work with local soil and water conservation districts, and we even work with lots of landowners. I mean, it's important for this kind of work that is directly, vis- it's visible to the, the surrounding community. We, we drive our Purdue trucks all over the place, and, and they see us. It's important to get that landowner buy-in. So we have landowners that, you know, they're happy to let us use their property, and they come to our releases, and, and they've we, they've really bought into what we do. So we have this big group of partners that, that really make this happen because it, it wouldn't be possible if it was just Purdue. The, the scale is too large for, for Purdue or even just Purdue and the DNR to, to accomplish this. So That just goes to show how it takes the collaboration of a whole bunch of people to conserve and revitalize a population. So what can the average person do to help hellbenders? Yeah, for people that don't live directly next to hellbender habitats, but maybe live in an area, like we mentioned, you know, you cut down your forest over here and stuff drains. So for people that, that don't live next to hellbender habitats, but, but do maybe live in areas that drain to a stream that contains hellbenders, uh, 
it's important to remember that, that that water does run off somewhere. And, you know, maybe you're in town and you're thinking, well, what I do in town doesn't affect hellbenders. But if there's storm drains there, in most places, storm drains do directly run straight to a stream. Uh, most of them are not treated. And so, so we encourage people to, you know, don't obviously don't pour things down storm drains, but if you're spraying pesticides in your lawn, you know, be, be aware of how that runs off and, and follow the directions. Cause some people think, you know, more pesticides are better and, and they are formulated to work on a very, you know, th what they say on that label, it, it should work. So we, we encourage people to follow the label on their pesticides. Don't pour stuff down the, the storm drains, you know, maintain your vehicles. People don't think about that. But if your car is leaking oil, that runs into the storm drain, runs into the river, the fish, the hellbenders. It's bad for everybody. Another thing that people really don't think about are pharmaceuticals. Uh, some people just, they don't know how to dispose of those. So a lot of times they just end up going down the toilets. Um, there are proper ways to dispose of pharmaceuticals and, and it varies depending on where you are, but you can usually call, uh, you know, your local pharmacy and they'll be able to direct you where you need to, to dispose of those. Uh, for people that don't live anywhere near hellwinter habitats, uh, that's a little different. Um, you know, we, we still encourage them obviously not to pour stuff down the drain, uh, but you know, it's, it's harder for them. You know, the main way would be to, you know, you can donate to conservation organizations, you know, zoos that have a hellbender program, uh, things like the Nature Conservancy. I, I didn't mention them, actually. We do work a lot with the Nature Conservancy. It's one of our partners. Uh, anything, anything like that, land trusts that buy land uh, that might be in hellbender habitat. If, you, if you're thinking that, you know, you'd like to have a place to donate land trusts are great because they they go out and they try to buy those properties that come up for sale that are usually sensitive maybe next to a sensitive resource endangered plants or right next to a river something the nice stuff the land trusts really try to keep the nice stuff nice so it really comes down to being aware of the fact that nothing you dispose of just disappears when you pour something down the drain or flush something down the toilet it might be out of sight out of mind for you but it goes somewhere maybe even your local streams or lakes. I'm so glad that Nick was able to come onto the show to talk about hellbenders. I learned so much about these amazing animals. Now, if you want to help hellbenders, you should definitely check out Help the Hellbender, which is a project organized by Purdue. You can also check out the Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative and Hellbender Conservation Campaign. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of hellbenders. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife or on TikTok at onwildlife. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. You've been listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details. 